What is up, guys? Welcome back to Consuming Crime with Jen and Jules. I'm Jules. Uh, Jen will not be joining us this week, unfortunately. Hopefully, she will be back next week. Hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode, Women Behind Bars. Crazy. I was listening to it over, and we recorded that on February 28th, which is wild because today is April 14th, which means we have not recorded in a month and a half. That is crazy to me. Um, But, you know, with everything hitting all at once, it is affecting each individual differently you know my family is not doing is doing differently than i'm doing because i don't live with them so you know they are quarantining our family me and jen's family is doing good jen's baby is doing wonderful we actually we i think we just announced the name last week so you guys just heard his little name is jonah little jojo little homie cannot wait to meet him in august anyway with all that being said let's continue with today's story So today I'm going to talk about a victim named Brad Perry. He was tragically killed and we will find out who did it today. This is going to be another cold case file episode, episode one. I want to say episode six, the night shift. On May 26, 1984 in Brigham, Utah, two students, Sabah and Barish, went for a drive to grab breakfast. They had been studying all night for an upcoming final and wanted to recharge. Between 3.50 a.m. and 4 a.m., they went to the local gas station for gas and cigarettes. Upon arrival, someone came out to serve them. This was odd, as this was a self-serving station. A man walks out and asks what they need. One student says, five bucks in gas, and hands him five one-dollar bills. The other student asks for cigarettes and hands the man a dollar. They were told not to go into the store, which was even more odd. The man walks back into the store and comes out shortly after. He hands the second student $4 in change. There was blood on the bills and it was definitely fresh. The blood was also on the man's fingers and shoes. This is the part where the students realize maybe they should run. Now, they rush back to their car and drive down to the nearest phone booth as they did not have cell phones back then. Within five minutes, police arrive on the scene. They go into the gas station and there's no one inside, at least no one alive. They notice blood on the tile that leads to the back room. They follow the trail. Once in the back room, they see 22-year-old Brad Perry lying in a pool of blood, deceased. Brad Perry, like I said, he was a good kid. Most everyone in town knew him pretty well as he was very friendly. He was engaged to be married, he was going to school, and he worked at the gas station to pay for both school and his upcoming wedding. He lived with his mother at the time, Claudia, and his brother, Lee. The community was tight-knit, even the officers knew who he was, which is why seeing Brad in this way was so horrifying. You know, who could he have possibly gotten mixed up with? Who would want to do this to such a good, kind kid? But unfortunately, as we've learned through all these cases that we hear, it does and it can happen to just about anybody. He had been tied up with a wire and brutally tortured. He had a skull fracture from a large bell. His skull was also crushed further using a large soda canister that weighed about 40 pounds. He had also been stabbed through the chest with a foot-long screwdriver. This had to have been something personal. The damage to his face was so severe that officers couldn't even recognize him. They only knew that it was him because they pulled out his wallet from his pocket which had his ID in it. Officers informed Brad's father as his mother and brother had been in California at the time. They had gone to California to visit SeaWorld, but of course, they rushed back home. 
He told Claudia, the mother, they killed him. Just flat tone, just like that. Along the way back home, Claudia needed to pull over as she became physically ill and threw up on the side of the road. Lee, Brad's brother, comforted her the best that he could. Back at the station, officers had Sabah and Barish, the two students, meeting with the sketch artist. The artist was having trouble capturing who the students saw, so Sabah took over and drew the man himself, which I think is kind of impressive. Like, give me that pen, and then he just, like, draws it. Anyway, I thought that was pretty cool. And Sabah was a good artist, so he was able to do the sketch quite well. They consistently mentioned and talked about the man's eyes. They described it as dark, empty, and, you know, typical, like, I see, like, serial killer eyes, kind of like how Ted Bundy had his eyes. I'm sorry, I know I bring him up quite a bit. Um, let's talk about him soon. Anyway, officers had a theory that the man must be someone that worked at the station. The reason they thought this is because the gas needs to be reset when someone pumps. Someone would have to know how to reset the gas from inside the store in order for the two students to begin pumping. Additionally, the floor safe was open. Brad did not have access to the key to that safe. The only person with a key to the safe was the assistant manager, Thomas Nager. Coincidentally, Nager did not show up to work the next morning. However, once news broke out about the murder, media flooded the gas station where police were still securing the area. Both the owner of the gas station and Nager showed up with the crowd. Officers took him in for questioning. The reason for not coming into work was that Brad was supposed to call and wake him up. He never received that phone call. According to the lead detective on the case, Scott Cosgrove, Nager appeared nervous and scared. He had also resembled the composite sketch. Since this is the 1980s, fingerprinting was all they had to go by. They were also able to gather up some hair from the scene. They brought in a fingerprint expert to see if they could match any of the prints to Nager. Oddly enough, his prints were not found anywhere in the gas station. The reason this is odd is because he works at the gas station. You would think his prints would be all over the place, unless they were wiped. 14 hours after the murder, the family finally arrives back home. There's already a media frenzy outside. They were like vultures. I think this is absolutely disgusting. And I hope at least today people are a little bit more sensitive about this kind of stuff, but who knows. It gets even worse. Those reporters would even camp out on the lawn. 18 hours later, officers are driving down Highway 89. They notice a man walking south. That man matched the description of the suspect. Additionally, there was blood on his hands and shirt. Officers took him to the station and placed him in a lineup for the two students. Neither student pointed out this man. So now they're at a dead end. Two weeks later, on June 7th, the family goes on a getaway to Montana. This was just after the burial and they just wanted to get away from it all. Upon arriving back home, they see that their home had been vandalized and burglarized. This part pissed me off and broke my heart at the same time. Like, really? Whoever did this went as far as to even defecate in Brad's bed. So this automatically makes you think, okay, whoever killed him definitely vandalized the home, at least in my head. Claudia immediately pointed the finger at next-door neighbor Craig Martinez. He had a criminal history, a bad temper, and he was known to be violent. Officers were able to search his home, unclear if this was via a warrant or consent, I have no idea. Um, but they did find items in his room that had been taken from the burglary. Witnesses came forward shortly after and claimed that Martinez came to a party and had blood on his clothes the night of the murder. In addition to this, 
Martinez was friends with Nager. At this point, everything kind of seems like it's coming together. Police found out that Nager would deal drugs, often at the gas station. Martinez was either involved in the purchasing or assisting of the distribution. Then began a theory that Brad knew too much about their business and needed to be cut off. Eh, plausible. Officers obtained a warrant for Martinez's fingerprints to match against the ones found at the scene. Is that a car alarm? Is that mine? Hold on. Oh my god. Shut up. Oh, it actually, it actually stopped. <laughs> anyway, like I said, officers obtained a warrant for Martinez's fingerprints to match against the ones found on the scene. Unfortunately, it does not match. There is not enough at this point to go after Nager or Martinez, and the case goes cold. Until 11 years later, in May of 1995, Sheriff Jansen assigned the Perry case to one of his detectives. They scoured the files, the videos, all the evidence, including the hair. The hair was never analyzed. Their next step was to find Nager and Martinez, their two main suspects previously. They were able to obtain Nager's hair. It does not match. He made a comment, though. Why are you guys bothering me when you know it was Craig Martinez that killed him? In March of 2003, 19 years after the murder, I don't know what the hell happened between 95 and 2003. I I guess it takes eight years to get a warrant. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, 19 years after the murder, Officers obtained a warrant for Martinez's hair, and at the time, he was in state prison. They went to the prison, where a SWAT team had to bring him down since he was known to be violent. Ugh, wild. The documentary didn't mention what he was in prison for, but the fact that they have to bring down the SWAT team, I feel like it's a waste of resources, but at the same time, I don't know how big this guy is. I don't know. I think it's a little much. Officers were not happy when he walked into the room. This guy shaved his head and his face, leaving no visible hair for the nurse to gather. However, hey, listen, moron, there's more than one spot that hair can be. So, the nurse grabbed two hairs from his nipple. <laughs> I don't know why. I thought this was funny because he's just walking in like a smart ass like hey I have no hair it's like hey you actually do anyway from my point of view he's trying to hide his hair he did it like he just he did it officers send it in for testing it does not match at this point hope was beginning to fade even I was like what then why did he shave his head if he didn't do it like I, I was just you know how these cold cases are they kind of throw you everywhere county attorney Amy Huggy, Huggy, I'm not, it's H-U-G-I-E, had an idea. Bride used to babysit for Amy's parents growing up, so she did have a personal connection to the case. She brought up the idea of DNA testing, to which law enforcement responded by saying they did not have enough funds for something like that. DNA testing was in its early stages, but it's something. Amy did come up with the funds to do the testing. Thank the Lord for Amy. Thank you. <laughs> I wonder how much it costs for... Like a DNA test. Hmm. They send in the evidence. All of it. The, you know, the hair, the swabs, all that stuff. They send it in for DNA testing and they get a response. Every piece of evidence had DNA 
that belonged to. Really quick, you guys, I interrupt this program to introduce you to today's sponsor. It is Consuming Crime's very first sponsor, and that is Audible.com, which is an Amazon-owned company. They are the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, and self-development. Every month, you get one free credit, and with our code, Consuming Crime, you can get one month free and one free audiobook. I actually use Audible myself. I don't really have time to sit down and read a book. I'm constantly moving around and, you know, doing school, work, the podcast, things like that. Right now, I am currently reading a book written by Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. I love a lot of his works, and the one I'm reading right now is called The Mastery of Self. I am obsessed with self-development, self-growth, and this book really teaches you about knowing who you are, knowing, you know, what you have to offer the world, and just knowing that, you know, no one's better than anyone ever, and I think it's really good to just be self-aware. With that being said, again, go on and head over to audibletrial.com slash consumingcrime and get your free audiobook on us completely. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash consumingcrime. Now, back to the story. Every piece of evidence had DNA that belonged to frustrated 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 uh, but i'm sure his family is way more frustrated every piece of evidence at least almost every piece the only item they had not sent in was the dollar bill it had been in the state's crime lab the lab informed detectives that it had already tested positive and it was just brad's blood on the bill however Officers were not satisfied with the test and took it back to do their own testing. They sent it to their own lab and finally, after all these years, there is a match. The DNA matches a man named Glenn Griffin. Who the hell is Glenn Griffin? Up until this point, you guys, I have not mentioned that name. Just letting y'all know. At the time... He was in custody in Lumpak, California for operating a meth lab, so still the theory of drugs is involved. He had been in and out of prison for most of his life. Officers got a hold of his probation record and located his mother. She did live near Burgum City where the crime occurred. His mother said that she had problems with him growing up. He never listened, he was always acting out, stealing and even harming animals. Officers asked for a photo of him that was taken around 1984. They placed the photo next to the sketch. It was an exact match. They finally freaking caught this guy. They were also convinced that Griffin did not act alone in this. His mother told them that he used to hang out with his friend Wade Mon all the time. They would commit crimes and do drugs together. Griffin would also threaten Wade all the time if he did not do as he said. With this new information, officers now had their weak link. Wade Mon. Wade had moved to Washington just after the murder. He had been a witness in another murder at the time as well. Wade just Wade just seems to get himself involved in some some stuff, some stuff. Officers contacted the Washington police to bring him in for another interview for their own case. Wade, initially thinking this was for something entirely different, was shocked when hearing the name Brad Perry. He remembered the night. Him and Griffin were at the gas station. Griffin began arguing with Brad something about beer. Brad had asked Griffin to leave, and he became furious. Because Griffin did have trouble with anger, topped with the drugs, things got violent, and they got violent quickly. 
When the two students drove up, Brad was still alive. And then Griffin came back in, took Brad to the back, tortured, and killed him. Wade tells officers, I, I, I cannot believe he really had the nerve to say this. All I did was tie him up and hold him down by his legs. <sighs> like, that's all you did? That's it? Okay. I hope you guys can hear my sarcasm in that. He said that once Griffin starts, he can't stop him, and his best bet was to just comply. Officers informed him that Griffin would be getting released from prison that next Monday, and they needed to have enough to arrest him before then. In June of 2005, 21 years after the murder of Brad Perry, Detective Cosgrove went in to interview Griffin in prison. He said that he was never at the gas station. Obviously, he's going to deny it. When confronted with the dollar bill evidence, I have to hand it to him. He had a good response. He said that it was probably passed down in the stream of commerce. This is plausible. And in regards to a jury in a court, this kind of throws out the dollar bill. This explanation obviously takes the weight away from the evidence. Additionally, their witness, Wade, refused to testify because he was so afraid of Griffin, even though he was offered immunity. So, no witness, no evidence, basically. In the eyes of the court and the jury, they could not move forward with this. However, however, I love these cold case howevers. I just threw them in there for some little spice, little pepper. Mitochondrial DNA was being tested. So, and this was like, again, the beginning stages. I don't know what the difference between mitochondrial and DNA is, but I'm just going to assume it's more intricate. They submitted the hairs found on the scene once again and put it up against Glenn Griffin. And it matches. In 2008, Glenn Griffin was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, I have to bring this up just because of the fact that, like, if I was a defense attorney and my client were to use the excuse of, oh, it was passed down in the stream of commerce, I was never at that gas station, but his hair was at the gas station, you know, you could easily argue that, oh, I was at the gas station, but not that night. Like, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that he was put in prison solely on the hair evidence, and I'm actually going to disagree with it. Because of the fact that in class right now, I'm being taught about the CSI effect. I have to tell you guys about the CSI effect before I end with the last couple sentences of the story. I gotta throw this in there. It, a lot of these, you know, cold case files and forensic files are, you know, they leave out a lot of stuff and they dramatize. Obviously, of course. They have to. But I need you guys to know that in the court of law, circumstantial and physical they weigh just about the same depending on what it is and i know in the past in a past episode i probably made a comment about circumstantial not meaning a whole lot i was wrong i was ignorant i was not aware but just so you guys know there's no way that glenn griffin only went to prison just on the hair dna there had to have been more there was definitely more I wish that cold case files would disclose that so that you guys would know, but if you're ever on a jury, listen to the whole story, not just physical evidence, because it all means a lot. I had to throw that in there. Sorry, sorry. Anyway, anyway, Wade. Let's talk about Wade. Wade Mon was also tried. You know, the one that all he did was tie him up 
like an asshole. Sorry. I, I promised myself I wasn't going to cuss mom, but I had to say it just once. I had to say it. Anyway, he was found not guilty. <sighs> Makes me a little upset, but what can you do? Present day, Brad's mother is at peace. And what she says was kind of beautiful, actually. She says that she knows she's going to see him one day, and he is only in another sphere. And Brad's brother, Lee, was inspired by this case to become a police officer. So, yeah, guys, that was today's episode. Rest in peace, Brad Perry. I They did not interview his fiance or his, I don't even know if you would say ex-fiance. That's kind of dark, but she was not in the episode. You know, you guys just, one thing I'm always going to stress in this show is just to be careful out there please i know right now we are very focused on social distancing and wearing masks washing our hands doing all that stuff but please remember the coronavirus is not the only thing to be afraid of and not that i'm saying to carry your life with fear don't ever 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 be paranoid and change your life because you're scared but just be aware you know, I carry pepper spray. I say it all the time. My employers know it, and they know that if they ever tried to say I can't have it in the building, well, then I quit because I need to feel safe when walking to my car at night. Um, anyway, just be safe out there, guys. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for consuming crime with me today, and I will see you next week, or you'll hear me next week. Bye, guys. <laughs>